Welcome to Tech Talks, the technology podcast with David Savage and Jack Pierce, publishing on Mondays and Thursdays. This is the show packed full of interviews and debate with technology leaders for the love of tech. Coming up on today's podcast, we are talking to Tom Wood. He is the CEO of Kazana. But before that, hi Jack. Hello David. How are you? Yeah, this has felt, this short week, or last week, which was a short week, felt incredibly long. It's quite slow, I think because no one's back yet and there's a lot of out of offices on. You're fucking kidding me, was it slow? <laughs> no, no. You're doing a lot though. Uh, I mean, we couldn't record this podcast any later on a Friday because I'm so busy. Um, we had a, just listeners won't care, but we had a bid come out on the third in for the seventh. That's free working days. They just wanted to get back up to speed, isn't it? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. not up to speed yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, um, this week's episode is with Kazana. Mm. Uh, Tom Wood is a, is a um, classic car enthusiast. I, yeah. I had to query, actually. I know very little about cars, not a, having a license or whatever, having owned a car. What makes a car a classic car? Age? I don't think it's just age, because the Renault 19 is an old car, but I don't yeah. think that's a classic I car. I don't know what that means. I'm like you, <laughs> I have no desire for cars or anything. Um, I'm quite happy with getting A to B. Whatever. I don't know, I mean an Aston Martin DB5. Sure, yeah, a Jaguar X-Type in racing green, yeah, lovely, but other than that, ask my granddad, he loves cars, <laughs> I don't. You're always told that what is it, a car loses half of its value the moment you drive it out of the, 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 the sale room forecourt or whatever. Oh yeah, my mum was married to a car salesman. <laughs> and even, even five years of marriage with him and me living with them, I still wasn't interested in cars. I don't really know a huge amount about cars, but I do know a little bit about technology platforms. Uh-huh, and startups. And startups, <laughs> and I found it interesting. Yeah. Um, so look, uh, as we said, Tom's our guest. We'll dive straight into the interview. But stay tuned, because afterwards, myself and Jack have a couple of pieces that we want to share with you. I should rephrase that. A couple of pieces. (laughs) God, this isn't video. (laughs) Myself and Jack have a couple of articles (laughs) that we have to share with you. Um, uh, But here's the interview with Tom. So we're talking to Tom Wood. You are, do you take up the title of CEO, founder? Sometimes people don't really care when when they're running their own business, but at other times title does matter. So for a long time I stubbornly stuck with MD because I'm a fairly hands-on CEO I suppose. Right. And I, was, I was finally persuaded at our last investment round to rebrand as CEO. So yeah. CEO, You're of, CEO Kazana. of Kazana. Yeah. Uh, and if anyone is not familiar with Kazana, very briefly, who are you? So we are uh, we're, we're a, a vehicle data company, an automotive data company, and we provide uh, a number of systems and websites to help people better understand vehicles, mm-hmm. uh, buy them, transact with them and own them. And typically speaking, that sounds like a B2C proposition, but it's not. It's, it's more of a B2C and B2B. There's, there's different angles to the services and the products that you're putting out to the market. That's right, yeah. So we have a, we have a couple of consumer sites, kazana.com, carandclassic.co.uk, mm-hmm. um, and these provide research tools for buyers that are coming along thinking about buying a vehicle or owning a vehicle. Uh, but most of our revenue comes from selling the data and access to the data to businesses. Mm-hmm. So we work with businesses from vehicle car dealerships through to insurers, uh, and finance companies that provide access to vehicles to customers. The insurance bit kind of immediately, I, I kind of went, okay, yeah, I get that. Yeah. When I saw some notes saying that you deal with um, dealerships and in particular manufacturers, I was a little bit confused. But then I saw a, a part of your website that said that um, 
car ownership is not so much about ownership, it's mobility, not ownership. And that's the path that we're going down. And that began to kind of inform how, how your data makes sense to these businesses. Yes, if you look at last year in the UK in 2017, 88% of new vehicles were sold onto a finance product. Right. So only 12% of people put their hand into the pocket and paid cash outright for a vehicle. Mm. And what that means is all the risk of the value of a vehicle is moving from us as individuals to the companies that provide them. And you know, at its extreme, that might be us just choosing to Uber around, and then the you know the fleet company will own that vehicle, mm-hmm. provide that vehicle, and after maybe three years of use, they'll get that vehicle back and have to remarket it. They'll have to sell it on into the market. So for them, understanding the current and the future value of that vehicle is a really really important part of uh, of working out how they monet- how how they um, set the price of the product for the consumer, uh, and how much they can get back for the vehicle in the future. Out of interest, how many how many vehicles are we talking about? You, how, how many data points have you got effectively now? So on the road in the UK, there are about 37.5 million vehicles. Wow. And we have a value for every single one of them today. And we have uh, a whole bunch of different scenarios that we can use our data platform to uh, to, to bring up for yeah, the future values between two, three, four, five years in the future and all mm-hmm. kinds of different mileages and condition scenarios. So we're able to model effectively the whole market of all the vehicles on the road, the car park as they call it, mm-hmm. now and into the future. Now that, it's, it's really interesting because you, you are, uh, would you describe yourselves as an SME now or are you still, you're not really startup? We're, we're I guess 22 people, we've only yeah. done, what we've done, just under two million pounds in funding. So I suppose we're, yeah, we're, we're somewhere in the middle, yeah. Kind of in that growth phase. Yeah. But you've got a lot of customers, um, but this started very much as a passion project because you've always had an interest in cars. Yeah. So that's an interesting journey from, and if you could share that with us, because this didn't start out as a, here's a business. Yeah, so your, your, your proper founder and CEO is supposed to fib and say that this was by design from when it started <laughs> seven years ago. It often yeah. isn't. <laughs> the reality is, yeah, it started as a passion product. So, um, project. So, so my previous career, I was one of two partners in a turnaround fund and we were buying distressed businesses and turning them around uh, and selling them on. So it was, a, you know, I spent a lot of time in, in boardrooms and lawyers offices uh, doing those deals. Um, and I suppose this was a bit of a, uh, a bit of a vent. Um, I originally trained as a software engineer, um, and I've always loved cars, in particular classic cars. Mm. And so this was a side project. It started um, trying to understand the value um, and the uh, and the profit opportunities, I suppose, in the uh, in the car market. I just out of interest, side note entirely, but if you're a car enthusiast, classic cars. I mean. What is your favourite classic car? Uh, so I, I owned my favourite classic car before I started <laughs> this business, and then I sold it during the bootstrap phase of it to pay for it. But uh, that was a, um, a Morgan Aero Eight. There's so a nice serendipity about that. Yeah, yeah. One day I'll get it back. You know, when right. we, <laughs> when the exit comes. Um, but yeah, no, uh, Morgan Aero Eight. So so made in made in England. Uh, still uh, quite a lot by hand. So the factory's up in Malvern, and they wheel right. bits of the car down the hill. So I see. Brilliant car. Yeah. So. Um, let's, let's let me get this timeline right. Uh, it started as a different website as UK Vehicle in 2014. Yep. By the end of 2015, you had 200,000 people coming to check the valuation of cars a month. Yep. And in 2016, you decided to start that conversation with them. With, 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 with backers, with VCs, yeah. Right, yes. Yeah. And that then led to you uh, becoming part of the passion capital cohort. Um, how did that happen? Because accessing funding, 
making that decision about whether it's right for your business is often something that people really do chew over. So understanding kind of the mentality and the thought process around why you decided that was right for you at that point is, is interesting. Yeah, we definitely chewed over that decision. I think it's fair to say. So we, um, you know, we had a, a great and fast growing business, largely in the consumer space through to the mm. end of 2015. Um, and we started talking to some of those consumers in early 2016 and say, you know, what are you using the site for to you know, understand how to improve the product for them? Uh, and a lot of those customers uh, were actually people that was part of their work were using the site. So these were people that were working in insurance companies in the claims division or working in car dealerships or car manufacturers using the site to understand the value of vehicles. And what we quite quickly realized is that in order to build out um, the products on top of the data set that we built, um, over the years, we were going to need to get some external capital into the business to be able to support the building of the products and then the monetization of those mm. products commercially. So, um, yeah, early 2016, we went out talking to uh, a couple of VCs, and I think you know we were extremely lucky. Um, we had a great story, so we were profitable at that point. Um, we were we'd grown you know very quickly um, already. And, uh, and so we went out to have a couple of conversations and we went to speak to one fund who were, I guess, a little too big for us. They were writing kind of series A and B checks uh, and they recommended us to go talk to Passion Capital, which was our second meeting. Uh, and we were lucky enough to get a term sheet out of that second meeting, which, you know, I, I now understand in hindsight <laughs> is it was extremely lucky to meet those people that understood the vision, um, understood where we were trying to get the business to. And, uh, and yeah, we've had a brilliant partnership with them ever since through another couple of funding rounds since then. I mean, obviously, you're in a slightly unusual position that you're already profitable. Most people, when they go looking for investment, they've got an idea, but they maybe haven't built the products. They're trying to get branding. They haven't yet gone to market. And I suppose their mentality is to get the funding on board, to build it, to turn it into a business, whereas you came at this from an entirely different position. How difficult was it mentality-wise for you to switch from, by that point, I appreciate it probably wasn't, it wasn't a passion project, it was, it was turning into a business, but you were very much in control of your own destiny and now someone else's money is involved and you have a different set of aims. Yeah, I mean, it's still a passion project, but it's just- Well, uh, you know what, just, yeah, yeah, just, yeah. of course, that's why it's doing well. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was, it was it was super difficult. You know, I think that's that's one of the hardest decisions in business I've made was, you know, do you move from this thing that it was, there was a lot of hard work going into it, but people would call it a lifestyle business uh, because I, it was 100% mine. Yep. You know, you can control that. You can take money out of that when you want to or not if you don't want to. Um, and uh, and we were trading effectively that, that, that freedom, the ability to do whatever you like with the business for actually... You know, let's get ourselves onto a, uh, a well-defined growth plan. Let's get somebody else's capital in to help fuel that. Mm. Um, and that's a big decision to make. Um, I think, you know, in hindsight now, it's worked out incredibly well because by getting somebody else that has got a vested interest in your success and your, frankly, much larger, creating a much larger enterprise value has been a huge support to me and the team in terms of driving us there and, you know, monitoring and measuring and, and pushing our success towards that, that larger value enterprise. Out of interest, how many of the team that existed before Passion Capital came into the picture are still involved in the business now? So we were really small, to be clear. It was uh, it was me and a bunch of freelancers and right. one full-timer. And that one full-timer is still here. And again, the first, in, first hire we made is still here. Um, so, yeah, I guess something's going on. It was only, only two years ago. Um, but, um, yeah, we, you know, we've grown very rapidly from, I guess, the three people we had on the payroll and a few freelancers around us to the 22 we have today. Now, this isn't your first startup business. As, as you kind of mentioned, you had a, you had a background, you are helping distressed businesses. So not only did you have your own business, but you were, you were getting an opportunity to view close hand other people's businesses. But what lessons have you taken from this particular journey that maybe have surprised you? 
so this is my first yeah, VC-backed business. Yep. I've, I've run other um, startups from scratch and bought into other businesses and turned them around previously. Um, and I suppose... I suppose one of the biggest challenges is because of the timescales, you know, you're, you're being driven in a good way to, to create enterprise value fast. You have to deploy that capital uh, largely in building a team. And building a great team traditionally takes time, right? And so you need to find ways of very quickly being able to assess people, resources that you're trying to bring into the business and, and work out uh, yeah, effectively how well they will mesh and fit within that team that needs to become high-performing pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fair to say that you know, we've... Uh, uh, we've we've done well on some, and we've done poorly on other decisions, um, and we've got a lot better at that kind of that triaging, understanding which people are likely to fit and be able to you know, to work in that high growth environment, and which people you know, perhaps aren't. Um, and uh, do you see any kind of correlation between the types of characters that tend to do well on that? None at all. No, no. Just wild, yeah. wildly different people. <laughs> yeah, the, the way the way we've we've started to deal with it now is we have um, ratcheted probation periods which works quite nicely so right. you can bring somebody in you know at, at, at the very beginning you know if somebody goes through the initial periods of interview we'll bring them in and we'll run them on a particular project as a freelancer mm. and if that goes well then we'll start to then we'll bring them in we'll offer them a full-time role and over time as we get to know them better and understand we'll we'll kind of extend the notice period until the point that they become a, a you know a fully permanent member of staff which works pretty well so that's a that's one of the techniques we've developed to to, to kind of help mitigate that does do, will will they work in you know, this environment? Will mm. they will they mesh well within the team? Because we have to have a high performing team. You know, we are relatively small, twenty two people. Um, you know, it's not it's not that many. Uh, and uh, and if you make some wrong decisions within that, then you end up with ten you percent know, of your workforce that that are not contributing to the yep. the right goal. It can be tricky. Look, last quick question then, and it might touch upon the answer that you just gave to, to the previous one. But as you're talking to other founders, or possibly to want to be founders. And entrepreneurs, what would be your your piece of advice from your experience? So I think we had, I think we did have an element of luck in the you know getting a term sheet after our second conversation with the VC. Yeah. But I also think because we had revenue, we had a big engaged customer base, we had month on month growth, that probably made us a an easier decision to make than I imagine something that, that came along with an idea and a big potential market. So I think as much as possible, and I understand, you know, I was, I was in a very lucky position in that I sold out of the previous group of businesses that, that I was running. So I had some capital to deploy to, to get this business to a, a decent stage. I think as much as possible, try to get some proof points, you know, ideally revenue, but if you're developing a new medical device or a drug or something, that's probably not possible. Yeah. Uh, but but get some customer proof points that you can demonstrate to VC. And I think that, that will make that funding conversation a lot easier. Well, look, Tom, it's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Uh, I hope you get your car back. (laughs) Thanks very much. Nice talking to you. So only 12% of Mm. people paid cash for a vehicle in the UK in 2017. Do you know what? That's, I I mean, everyone I know is cash stripped, right? It's times are tough, whatever. But I thought this would be significantly higher than that. I had no idea. So that's 88 odd percent of people lease their cars. Yeah. So they loan their cars. Because at the end of a lease, you have to give it back, right? The car isn't yours like with a phone contract. Yes. So that just, um, yeah, amuses me. I think it's wonderful as well that data, you know, it's obvious that data can be used in a number of different ways, but the current and future price, the predictive modelling for, say, the fleet of Uber, Mm. you know, how much is our fleet going to be worth in two years, three years, five years? Would you say the leasing model helped shape or took shape from the gig economy? Anything really to do with that? Um, Do you think that's had an influence, especially, you know, especially last year when, like, say, 88% of people... Least cars. Well, when I was growing up, 
You bought your car. Yeah, everyone did, yeah. You bought the car. Yeah. And um, I don't know when the car financing model... Shifted. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of happened without me really being aware of it. I'm still sure that my parents buy their cars. Yeah, yeah. I think mine. I've got no idea. I, I, honestly, Dad, this if you're is listening, the most important I don't care. <laughs> on tech talk, do, your, do we know if our parents still lease their cars? Because <laughs> us two are too much of losers to get our own cars. But what I love about this was that um, it really shows that you have to understand your audience to make sure that you make the best of your business because I knew the there whole, was a point in there somewhere yeah, I was getting to it uh, <laughs> the whole point around being able to model the future um, cost of a fleet mm. only came about because at the end of 2015 the beginning of 2017 sorry 2016 they started talking to their customers and asked them why they used the site there you go and they assumed that it was because it was their own personal use of car but it wasn't they were using it in work and I found I found that brilliant as a, as a piece of um insight into understanding your business understanding your audience going out and not just kind of going oh the numbers are going up but why are they going mm. up what are people using our product for how can we tailor our services to better meet their needs that's a brilliant example oh it's a fantastic business model um yeah i mean f- for me i love the fact that a passion project actually came to fruition and not just like he had to struggle for five to ten years Almost immediately. Mm. Uh, you know, he talks about how he got kind of lucky with his VC-ish funding. Yeah, and, and he adds to the point that he'd had a couple of businesses where he was able to free up some equity of his own. Yeah. Which obviously helped him get, get going. And got rid of his classic car. Yes. <laughs> um, but, I mean, his experience, Tom's experience, for me, is arguably one of the sort of best background experiences he can have because he mm. sort of worked for turn, turning around businesses that were failing to sell them on for profit to investors or whatever. Now, to have the wherewithal and the knowledge to see where a business is failing, how to improve it to then sell it for a profit, mm. having that knowledge must be integral at, at the birth of a startup. Well, let's face it, the amount of startup um, founders that we've spoken to through the course of the podcast um, who've, let's have a think about who jumps to mind, ideal flatmate Tom Gatson talks yep. about the fact yep. that having a chairman who's been there and done it was invaluable to them as, a, mm. as, as someone who was kind of a mentor to their business in the early stages. And yeah. Tom is very lucky that he's got that in him himself. Absolutely. Um, it was quite interesting, actually. I, I kind of thought when you get to the end of the interview and he starts talking about um, advice mm. and he was talking about, you know, I was lucky to have that revenue um, because of the fact that I was able to put my own money into it and get it going. But as much as possible, have proof points. Um, it almost sounded quite old-fashioned. Not in a bad way. Not that's not a slight at all. But it, it was so alien to now the the current concept of get users and then prove profit. I mean, look, I was taught to pee all over my work when making the point. You know, point, exa- explain, example. You know, he just he's a data driven man. He just needs this information. Mm. Um, Can I just add? I love the point. Right, and we talk about AI taking away laborious tasks and, and stuff like that. Yeah, I love the innocently sweet point that his favourite car I forget the name of the model now but it's still crafted and built by hand yes uh, that was just amidst an amazing technology platform that is driven the, by B2B and yep. B2C data his favourite car is still crafted by the hand the Morgan Aero 8 I've never heard of it I've not heard of it either <laughs> sorry Tom I'm sure it's a beautiful car um, sounds like something Alfred from Batman would drive I thought there was some great insight as well around uh, hires and he talked about how they've had to triage yeah. Um, and, you know, I asked him that question, the correlation uh, of people, you know, have you spotted any correlation, the personality types of people who are able to work in a high growth business? 
And I love his honesty in saying, not at all. Yeah. But the really valuable bit there for, for anyone else who's thinking of starting their business was then to say, they haven't tried necessarily to reinvent the hiring process. They've just changed the processes internally around probation periods to counter for any errors. And it's almost that acceptance that we won't get it right 100% of the time, but we can't have 10% of our workforce not on board. It's it's kind of taking that perfect blend of hiring on potential meets, you know, hiring on competency. By, you know, that probation period, it allows for mistakes, a slightly less pressured environment. Because let's be honest, what do you say, 22 employees? That's going to be a high pressured environment, no matter how wonderful the culture is. So to allow that extra sort of time for, for mistakes and growth, it's, mm. it, yeah, it's it's very good culture. And you mentioned um, at the beginning of this short piece of analysis that has proved to be less insightful at the beginning than, than some of our others, but never mind. <laughs> um, that uh, you know they, they got that that funding, yeah. passion capital, an yeah. amazing brands to get on board. Yeah, uh, Eileen Burbage's firm, um, VC Queen of London. Wow. Uh, so you know a, a real kind of coup to get them and you know he says that it was very lucky that that was their second meeting. But I love that he again had the honesty to say you know that was one of the hardest decisions to give up something that was 100% his where he had the freedom where it could be classed as a lifestyle business to then go you know what we're going to try and push this further and aim for a little bit more because it would be easy to go oh, it's all right this is ticking over this is this is easy. Exactly. Um but I, I his point around having um, a second external party that added rigor to the business that pushed them that was really really valuable it shows that you know that that, that benefit of having someone with 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 a slightly different perspective on, on the scenario Tom's to, uh, I'll touch back to it again Tom's experience in in his previous businesses has made him the perfect CEO founder MD whatever he wants to call it but the experience informs him that yeah. it's not down to just him he yeah. can't have all that knowledge yeah. he needs partners yeah, he exactly. needs people to help him his business aided other businesses he yeah. saw that and thought right well we want an outside influence helping us get to the next stage and you know rightly so there we go well we look Hopefully, I'll find out more about cars as I get older, but for now, loving Kazana. And the Metro Morgan 8, or whatever it's called. Morgan Aero 8. Sounds like a chocolate bar. Does a bit. <laughs> uh, that's the end of part one of the show. Stay tuned. We will be back in a few moments with a couple of articles. So, Jack, are you getting over the January blues? Have you got New Year's resolutions? Uh, no to both. Well, two books that might be able to help you come up with some some targets for the new year yeah the art of life admin by elizabeth emmons okay available on audible that's a new release and the world's fittest book by ross edgley uh the cover of which will shame you into the gym it's a very good really? man ah uh, they might have used an old stock photo of me for that then i don't think so no. he's about three jacks wide wow yeah but they're new releases on audible that might help you ease into the new year in a positive frame of mind i'll give them a go your turn to go first this week, Dave. Yeah, all right. Um, I think you're going to like this one. Go on. So it's all about Luke Skywalker's bionic hand. Fucking yes. I have been <laughs> waiting. Dave, this week alone, I have watched uh, Empire Strikes Back and Return of okay, the Jedi. Okay. I am ready to talk about this. So I was on Twitter earlier and I saw a tweet from the account at Seeker, right? That was posted today. Mm. And it was a video. Um, of someone playing the piano, an amputee playing the piano with a prosthetic hand. Uh, I thought it was amazing. Uh, and the source was the Georgia Institute of Technology. And, and basically what they'd been able to do... Do they go by Git? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. Um, anyway, 
Um, what they've been able to do, he, he, he had a prosthetic that was just below the elbow. Mm-hmm. And when he tried to um, move his index finger, they noticed that there were subsonic waves going on um, that caused little muscle twitches in, in his skin. Yeah. And they were able to, to build this hand that allowed him to actually move individual fingers continuously and therefore play the piano. And I just thought... It was mind blowing. I thought you were going to say that you know you can just program the hands to play piano for you, and you can just become a Mozart without being able to read music. No, would have been impressive. I think that would have actually been less impressive if you could program. Tech just, impressive, just... but user not impressive. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so I so I read the article, but the article actually turned out that it was it was from December the eleventh, two thousand and seven. What so, the? Yeah. so I went down a bit of a rabbit warren here because I was like, all right, well, this is interesting. So they've, they've had these amazing kind of breakthroughs with ultras, ultrasound machines, and that mm. was a year ago. Mm. Where are we at with prosthetics today? Mm. So I went and did a little bit more research. Really kind of doing some stuff. Look out. Yeah, yeah. I haven't done half as much work here. As and you I, found, I found this link uh, talking about Tamar Makin. Dr. Tamar Makin, a neuroscientist at the University College of London, uh, excited about recent efforts to incorporate machine learning into arm prosthetics. Yes. Right? Currently, the most most robotic prosthetics are operated by reading a muscle signature from the user's arm. The breakthrough with, with the Georgia one was that it was using ultrasound uh, to right. do that. Right, yep. Um, with sophisticated pattern recognition techniques, the prosthesis... Prosthesis? Prosthesis. There we go. Learns yeah. to recognise <laughs> sure. more complex and potentially subtle muscle signals, allowing the user to match how they operate the prosthesis and how they move their biological body. Right. Yep. I was like, this sounds interesting. And the headline of this article was, from robot companions to third thumbs, machines can change the human brain. Third thumbs scares me. Right. Um, so I clicked on the article that was talking about Dr. Tamar Macon. Right. Uh, and this is in the EU Research and Innovation magazine. Hell yeah. We're still <laughs> part of the EU. I'll read this. Uh, <laughs> Whilst we still are. Yeah. Uh, it was written by Frieda Klotz. And amongst other things, they had this really interesting thing about the third thumb, right? In order to understand how the brain... Just, sorry, I'm being wildly inappropriate, but when you said third thumb, it, it go on, sorry. We've already been talking about pieces earlier. <laughs> right. In order to understand how the brain deals with an extra body part, the team asked participants to wear an additional opposable thumb for a week, right? Yeah. The additional thumb um, with the augmented hand has the capabilities of two hands, giving people extra capacity to carry out actions. The question is, what effect did it have on the brain? Where's this other hand on, on no, the no, body? No, so a thumb, a thumb is oh. on, the other, on the same hand. Right, okay. So you've got two thumbs on one hand. The study is still underway, and this is the really interesting bit. And I, and I kind of kind of jumped all over the place. This is the interesting bit. Study's still underway, but preliminary results indicate that the presence of an extra thumb alters the brain's internal map of what a biological hand looks like. Yep. Scans show that the brain represents the fingers as collapsing into each other, away from the thumb and the index finger. This mirrors what happens in diseases like dystonia, where the representation of fingers begins to merge. For instance, when musicians use their fingers excessively and causes cramp-like pain. Mm. The same effects could theoretically cause pain in the wearer of an extra thumb. One important interim message, says Dr. Makin, is that we have to understand that there are potential costs 
not just benefits to using augmentation technology. She believes that the newness of human augmentation means that there are lots of unanswered questions, but it's vital to explore the challenges of wearable robotics in further, further to, 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 sorry, to further realize the promises, such as multitasking or safer working conditions. Right, so to laymanize, if that's even a word, to put it in layman's terms. It was terms, rewiring the brain. Yeah, it was not, it was confusing your brain it's not as simple as sticking something no. on and then you're going, oh, I've got to... There it goes, it works. Because it's not a temporary thing. It begins to reconfigure and reimagine your entire understanding of how to use your hand. So third thumb's not a good idea. Well, no, it's just interesting, isn't it? Because we often talk of, uh, about kind of um, exoskeletons and oh, augmenting human, the human body and whatever else. Mm. But what it's saying is that if we do that, right... Actually, what does it do to the chemical neuroscience, yep. the, patholog- the, 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 the pathology of your brain? Are you laying down new connections that then will prove problematic? And it's just something I'd never really considered before. And absolutely, um, development of prosthesis that allows someone to play the piano, fantastic. Yeah. But isn't it crazy that actually external tech like that can rewire our brains, the existing adult brain. Not like, this is not someone who's yeah. yet to be born that we're kind of subtly changing generation on generation. This is someone as they are right now. You have to be aware of the consequences. Fascinating. I Yeah, mind blown, if you will. I don't know whether I've conveyed that appropriately, but I found it really interesting. I th- yeah, definitely. I, yeah, I'm just about keeping up with all that. <laughs> Cook uh, for Friday afternoon at about right. 5.30. Oh, here we go. Get, okay. ready, get ready for something equally as in-depth. <laughs> Samsung's folding phone. Yeah, there we go. Um, I, I saw this. I, I'm seeing this online. Yeah. So I just want to like. There's a, there's a there's a good article on Gizmodo.co.uk by Holly Brockwell, uh, written on the third of Jan. Uh, it talks about as we edge closer to Mobile World Congress in February. This is likely to be the launch of the Samsung foldable phone. We don't know if it's called the Galaxy Flex, the Galaxy Fold. <sighs> Who knows? Yeah, I saw I saw an article um, yesterday predicting that you know that the technology was there oh it's that been samsung, done that samsung were ready to, yeah. to launch it i forget the name of the company who did it i hadn't heard of them before something like flex pi or, or pai something like that they've done it but the the, the race now is um is huawei versus samsung for this not um, apple i couldn't see anywhere that apple were bothered by it and that's the question i wanted to ask you dave or two questions it's two-pronged why the need for a fold and is it worth the sort of extra 600 quid or whatever it's going to be? Well, I'd imagine if you had a foldable screen... It's more what... of a tablet to phone, I guess. Well, exactly. Yeah. You don't need a tablet and a phone. Yeah. Like, it's sometimes... That's they're... why Apple aren't doing it then. Well, yeah, but but if everyone else does it and then you go, well, why would I need an iPad and an iPhone when I can just buy this Huawei that folds out yeah. to be a tablet? Yeah. Because there are times when I'm like, it'd be really good to have a slightly bigger screen that I could type on. On a train? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but or, then be yeah. able to fold it back up yeah. in such a way that then it's compact in my pocket it's and I can just, use it as a phone. So I, I, I get why you would want it. Yeah, it's it's mental. I mean, I know this is, maybe I'm just being a bit of a thicko again, but the fact that you can collapse and fold screens and then open them up to use, I mean, I'm, we're I'm not, from a generation way, we're, where we're, when a screen broke, you, it was fucked forever. We're, we're not just talking about uh, a hinge here as well. Like I've no, seen... No, yeah. I've seen um, TV screens, TV screens that really are they're like sheets of paper but they're ultra 4K whatever it is that we're up to now OLED screens oh yeah yeah ultra 4K 4001K whatever it is now but I mean for me I, it makes sense because I think I think I was reading somewhere that Samsung sales have been down um, 
you know, in comparison to, I mean, iPhone, uh, Apple's shares have plummeted this week alone. It's like 35%. Well, yeah, because 16%, I think it's 16 or 18% of their market is in China. Yeah, so people, exactly, you, you know, we don't And if the, China, if the Chinese market suddenly goes cold and, and Huawei are producing as good phones as, as an iPhone. So you tell us. Well, they are. They do produce very good phones. Yeah. It's, we return to a point that we probably made about a year ago now that the iPhone isn't just its phone. People don't buy it for that. They buy it for the economy that's within it, right? And the platform that's within it. And the name. It. Yeah. And in the States, that's why it's got 52% market share. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I'm holding up my earpods now that I'm very proud to own. You know, it's part of... I hate it all. You know, I don't have an iPad. I don't really buy into Apple as a business, but I need the earpods because mm-hmm. why should I have to use wires anymore? Why? Why, Dave? There are other companies that have a wireless. I found them last year for one of my products, um, but I didn't buy it because I got a really good deal on the earpods. Right, AirPods. Fine. Okay. No, I, I think I think foldable. I get it with, like, as I said, foldable you do, phones yeah. and fold, fold, You know, the, the difference between being able to switch from a phone to a tablet with ease. I get. I don't really understand the need for a foldable TV screen. Uh, good for holiday. You know, if you're going on a shit holiday, but then you know, why would what? you go on holiday to watch so telly? You, you, you take a 52 inch TV in a mini collapsible bag or something. Yeah, you open it up on the plane. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everyone, we're watching Lord of the Rings today. It's a bit odd. But I mean, look, it's, I think it's pretty cool. I just wanted to get your opinion on it because, you know... It... No, I, look, and, and the other thing is, let's, let's be perfectly honest, we're a bit like magpies, aren't we? Oh, absolutely. Ooh, new gizmo. It folds. Look at this. Isn't it sexy? But I don't... I mean, just touching on Samsung phones again and Android in general, every time I see an Instagram story, a Snapchat story, whatever, of someone that's used their Samsung phone, maybe it's something to do with the technology in an iPhone, but it looks like it's terrible resolution, terrible quality. Maybe that's something uh, in Apple's yeah, program. Yeah, no, I, I haven't had a proper it. close look at Samsung recently. I mean, the the the, the resolution on the Huawei screens is is incredible. Um, but you also have to ask, in their current state, what else can they really now do with phones? So they've got to try and innovate and, and refresh them. I mean, I think what will be more interesting is if we get away from screens entirely, like when we were talking on the show yeah. last week about um, radar haptics. Yeah, or you know, Star Wars holograms. Uh, and yeah, and and we can have a, a third thumb to help us use the phone in ways that we never. No have. third thumb. I don't want to rewire <laughs> my brain. It's already fucked as it is. Well, look, it's nearly the weekend. It is quite late on a Friday. Um, it's Monday morning for everyone it's, else. It's Monday morning <laughs> for everyone else. But we hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, coming up later in the week, we've got Ricardo Fernandez. He is uh, from Prodigy Finance. So we're going to be talking all about their solution that helps people from. Uh, less advantaged parts of the world get access to higher education in the best parts of the world. Ding dong. Um, But until then, have a lovely week and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.